Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Bodies and Souls, Conversations for the Jewish Woman. My name is Sarah. I'm a certified teacher and school leader. I'm passionate about education and Torah and Hasidus. My name is Rifki. I am a certified nurse, midwife, and college teacher. I am passionate about using our bodies and our innate spiritual abilities to serve Hashem in the most healthy and complete way possible. Together, we are pleased to present to you Bodies and Souls, fascinating and informative conversations for you, the Jewish woman. Our aim is to provide you with multidimensional information that will inform and inspire you to be the best version of yourself, supporting your bodies and souls as they strive to be the very best in fulfilling our ultimate potential in bringing Mashiach now. Good morning and welcome to Bodies and Souls. Today we have Rifki Slenem with us. Rifki is the Associate Director at the Chabad Center for Jewish Student Life at Binghamton University. She's an internationally known teacher, lecturer, and activist, and she travels widely addressing the intersection of traditional Jewish observance and contemporary life with a special focus on Jewish women in Jewish law and life. Rifki is the editor of Total Immersion, a mikvah anthology, Bread and Fire, Jewish women find God in the everyday. And Rifki's actually putting out a new book called Holy Intimacy, The Heart and Soul of Jewish Marriage that is co-authored with Sarah Mrazov and published by Shaky Press. And it's due out in the fall. We're very, very excited um, about the book that is coming out because I feel like it's going to change the way women um, have access to Tyra and Kedusha and have access to this really beautiful part of our lives. So before we start, Rifki, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? My husband and I were zeichet to become the Rebbe Shluchim uh, to bring him to New York at the very end of 1984. Uh, we've been here ever since. Uh, it was clear when Binghamton was scoped out uh, for the purposes of sending a shliach that the pressing need was a presence for the very large Jewish community at what was then called Harper College and is now called Binghamton University. At the time of our arrival, there was no other Jewish organization. There were no professional staff servicing uh, the thousands of Jewish students here. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Uh, Baruch Hashem, we've been joined by um, a, a team of three other shluchim couples here, and we hope to grow that that uh, team going forward. Um, parallel to this, not less important, is the fact that my husband and I are the grateful and proud parents of nine children and Baruch Hashem, a growing number of grandchildren. And I might just insert here um, that my uncle, Rabbi Nassim Gurari, who is our Hetchliach, who uh, brought us to Binghamton, um, in one of his many Yechidasen, the Rebbe told him that the tachlis of the Shlichas is to have Hasid Shinachas. That's so beautiful. So they can't be two disparate lanes in the highway of life. They can't be two disparate strands. They, they have to be intertwined. So funny. I had this conversation actually this week with Esther Prokarski from Tel Aviv because we're on a chat together and I made one comment which didn't sit right with her and she went into this whole thing because I was like, we need boundaries, right? We need boundaries on the shuffles that we're doing um, so that we can then gift our children. And she said, Rifki, it's one and the same. You cannot separate one from the other. Um, 
And to someone who's very like everything belongs in a box, that was, you know, it, it took time to like sit on her words a little bit. Um, you also I tend to agree with her. Uh, I knew you would. <laughs> but to me, yeah. yes, it, like it took me a second, like it made me step back for a second to think like, what do you mean? Like sometimes I see kids who like do need more attention. And I think to myself, well, maybe we need to put some boundaries on the work that we're doing. But I think that when when you enmesh them one with the other in a total sense and your kids are involved, that was the point that she was saying is that you can't ever separate in either direction. It always has to be together, which took me a minute, by the way. Um, so I actually was at your Chabad house and I know that you spend a lot of time in the kitchen cooking beautiful meals for um, the campus students that come there. There's a lot of other programs that happen in Binghamton. But in addition to that, you also lecture, um, write, and you're a professor in Binghamton University. So how did you get into that role? Well, I should state that I'm no longer an adjunct professor of Binghamton. I had a good run. Um, I did do that for many years. I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, it's really hard for me to trace the trajectory of my life because it's not like I went after these things. I was very fortunate. They kind of came after me. Um, I think I began my public speaking career based on the fact that somebody had heard that I had done a very special Friday night for my girls on love and marriage. Um, and she said, would you come to our community and speak to our women? I, I believe that that was really how it happened. I did that because my husband was going to the Kinnis Hashluchim. We were just new to Binghamton. I wasn't going with him and I wasn't just going to sit in our apartment and do nothing. So I invited the girls for a special dinner and I figured to myself, which girl doesn't want to talk about love? Um, and so that was probably the beginning. I think it was Masha Vogel in Rochester who lives a few hours up the road from me, uh, who invited me to her uh, community to speak. And I guess the rest just happened from there. Um, I never set out to be a writer. Uh, again, it was an outgrowth of my experiences, uh, going to different communities, speaking on the topic of mikvah, uh, feeling like women needed to hear other women who were real and honest, recount their experiences and needed writings that spoke to their hearts and their minds about this very important subject. And then the same thing happened with the book on women's spirituality, and the same thing happened with this, um, this current project I'm involved in, uh, where Sarah and I both recognized that there was a real need uh, to speak on this topic. And, and by the way, for whoever's listening, I've seen parts of this book, and it's amazing. So please keep your eyes peeled for it, because it's going to really make you... Um, look at everything in a new way um or whoever's listening you should know uh <laughs> that there uh, in the book uh sarah and i uh, do the first section and the second section of the book uh offers a very rich array of resources uh to our readers on many subjects that interface with a woman's life including a very wonderful chapter by your very own hostess rifka Bayarsky. um <laughs> and it's 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 accessible, it's clear, it's thorough, it's organized, and it's just a wonderful compendium of things every woman needs to know about her health, both physiological and psychological. And we're very, very grateful to Rifki. Thank you. Um, one of the more popular ways to describe you is as a Hasidic feminist. And I think a lot of people who don't um, understand what that means or 
what is what does Hasidic feminism mean to you? What does what does the word feminism from a secular perspective mean? And what does Hasidic feminism mean? Well, the the way I understand it, feminism is the quest to eradicate the lie that women are in some way less worthy than our men. And for me, it's so clear that from the perspective of Hasidus, uh, Chabad Hasidus specifically is what I'm talking about. And then specifically the Hasidus that our Rebbe gave us, um, that, <laughs> that premise is, is completely outlandish and corrosive. And uh, so for me, feminism is a natural fit. So to you, it's something that you saw growing up that women were able to do all these wonderful parts of, of their Avaita. And therefore you felt like it was just natural that women could be able to fall into a role of empowerment. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, before empowerment was a term that everybody bandied about, uh, I think I grew up seeing just a lot of role models uh, of strong women um, who were extremely vital, not only to their family structures, but to the communal structures. Um, And it actually came as a shock to me uh, that people would think that women are not valued in the Hasidic community, in the firm world. Um, I've grown since then, (laughs) came to Binghamton University, where at the time of my arrival, there happened to be a preponderance of professors who taught here, who were at the um, front lines of the Jewish feminist movement. Uh, Some really notable names taught here at the time, and I was pummeled with questions and challenges. But until that point, I had pretty much taken it for granted that uh, men and women together have a very important role to fulfill. And uh, where I looked in my own orbit, I didn't see women being repressed. I did not see their voices being muted. Um, in, in, in my life, I heard the voices of strong men and women all around me. How do you feel about um, a, a common term that maybe is used a little bit less commonly in Lubavitch, but a lot of our listeners are not from the Chabad um, community? Um, how is that? Is that misunderstood? Um, how is it misunderstood if it is? I think in the conventional way, it is translated as a woman being a support for her husband. Um, but of course, our Rebbe gave us uh, an additional and perhaps even alternate understanding. And it's just about putting the comma in a little bit differently. Ezehi Eshek Sheira, who is the, um, the woman of valor or uh, the great woman, the kosher woman, Ha'isa, the woman who creates Ritzayin Baila. She creates the will of her husband. She guides him in understanding his role to the best possible ability of bringing it to fruition. And how do we see such a thing in a practical sense? In a practical sense, I would step back and um, to use more secular terms for a moment, uh, there are always accusations being leveled at, at Judaism, certainly traditional Judaism as being patriarchal. 
And, and in many ways, it is a patriarchal society. But in many ways, it's matriarchal, beginning with the fact that you're only Jewish if your mother is Jewish. If you look through Jewish history, it's not a secret that it's the Jewish women who have always pulled the Jewish nation forward from generation to generation, who did not um, stumble over the same obstacles as the menfolk over and over and over again, uh, were possessed of an intense clarity of purpose and direction. So you could say it's a matriarchal tradition. But the truth of the matter is, that's our problem when we start focusing on is it matriarchal or is it patriarchal? Because to understand what Judaism is, and certainly through Hasidus, through the gift of Hasidus, we understand this perfectly well, it's covenantal. It's not about me. It's not about my husband. It's not about men. It's not about women. It's not about male. It's not about female. It's about all of us understanding that we are in an eternal covenant with, with the Kaddish Baruch Hu with the one who created the universe and gave us life and sent our soul into this world at this explicit moment in history to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And so when we understand that, we work together in partnership, in tandem to fulfill our mission. And if that means that the woman has to support the husband at whatever time, that's what she does. If it means a husband has to support his wife at whatever given time, then that's what he does. You know, people talk a lot about how in marriage, in order to succeed, you have to compromise. Who wants to compromise? No that one. Means that you get 50% <laughs> at most of what you want. But Hasidus teaches it's not about compromise. It's about bittle. When you together are able to define, identify exactly what is important, then that becomes the goal and each one will do what needs to be done to achieve that goal. And then you get 100% of what you want in life. And that same thing is mirrored in our marriage, in our macrocosmic marriage with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. So it's a three, you could say if you're married, it's kind of like a three-way dynamic. It's you, your husband, and God. And together we want to achieve what we must. And we will help ourselves. We'll help each other do what we are meant to be meant to do. You took out the matriarchy, you took out the patriarchy. It's about the goal. And is that why um, I don't think I've taken it out. I, I think we just need to transcend those constructs. Because uh, they, we just trip over them over and over again. We we, we need to get over ourselves. Because it's and a limiting construct. It, it holds you back. It's like who's better? Is it the men? Is it the women? But in reality, it's neither. Because we're all working to our common goal. Exactly. And that's you know the famous story about the chassid that comes to the rebbe and he bemoans the situation. And the rebbe said, "You've told me a lot about what you need, but we haven't talked about what the world needs from you, what the abishur needs from you." So we have to elevate the whole conversation. And in that process, we elevate ourselves. And I feel that we come to fruition and we, we get what we really want, which is a feeling of fulfillment.
Is that why, even if you look historically, um, Judaism, which really stands alone in this, had very strong female leaders as well in history? Like historically, there was like Devira or, um, you know, there were different Nevi'is that led the Yidin in some sort of capacity. It's true. Or is that a different discussion? It's true that we had strong female leaders throughout history, Um, but those were anomalous, let's be honest. and, and I think that that kind of, again, muddles the topic because really it's about the intensely strong leadership of the rank and file woman who led her family forward and together these women led our people forward. So when the Gemara says, that it was in the schus of the righteous women, I think a lot of us kind of roll our eyes and we feel like it's apologetic and this is just to smooth our ruffled and just uh, our ruffled feathers and you know just to massage our egos a little bit. But let's remember that the Gemara was written before feminism was a glint in anybody's eye. It certainly is not woke. I would say it's an equal opportunity offender. And it was not written to, to um, assuage our hurt or pain that we are somehow secondary. The Gemara is most blunt in every single situation. So if it's saying it was in this chus and that it's in this, and then it's in the chus of, of, of the righteous women that would be redeemed from this galus, we should take that seriously. We should own that. We should recognize the gravitas in those words. These are not just platitudes being thrown around. Can you give um, some sort of down-to-earth example of how women should really take this type of responsibility seriously? We have to get up every morning and we have to think, what can I accomplish today towards my personal mission, of my family and whatever it is I do outside the home in addition to the family or increasingly within the home, but outside the home orbit. And if that doesn't, you know, if that's not an overlay on my spiritual mission in the world, then, then what am I doing today to further that mission? So if we put it on our list in the same way that we all make lists about what has to be done. And, you know, one of the things that has always been interesting in my life is I'll look back at old lists that I find. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to the digital era. I'm not a digital native. Uh, so I still make most of my lists on paper. And sometimes I'll find an old list and it's always striking how it'll be something about maybe a button or bringing something to the cleaner and then something really big and huge on the same list. They're all things that have to get done that day. But if we add to that list, put it on the list, the practical list of what I have to do today, saying telim or saying chitas or learning with somebody or reaching out to see how I can help somebody that I know is struggling or whatever it is, that's practical. That has to go on our to-do list because we are the Nashim Tzitkaniyes, whether we like that or not, we have to look in the mirror and realize that we have a very important job to do. So we have to reclaim our job in creating change into this world and make it something that's personal to us. 
I mean, I hope we don't have to reclaim it. I, I hope we just I think for do. some of us, we do. I think sometimes the, the talk that we're having, um, maybe in high school or when we learn to this or when you feel very connected, but sometimes we need to reclaim it. Sometimes people, especially with little children, you feel like you wake up in the morning, you make bottles, you change diapers, you did it. And then you almost lose yourself. So reclaiming even a small moment, five minutes to say breakfast out loud with your kids, five minutes to, you know, sit on the deck and, and just think, listen to, you know, a tiny share, listen to say your tale. those five minutes is reclaiming. And that's, that's sometimes a very big deal. Absolutely. Um, I have another question for you in a little bit of a different direction. Um, one of the concepts that I find people really misunderstand is the concept of mashpia makabel. Um, and sometimes it's understood that a man is the mashpia, that means that he is above the woman. Um, and then a woman is the makabel, and she is below him and needs to accept what is, you know, whatever it is that's coming that way. And I think that um, on a very superficial level, the words mashpia and makabel in that sort of way really um, rubs people the wrong way. So can you clear up some misconceptions when we're talking about the male, female energy, mashpia and makabel? I know I it's a big question. <laughs> I can try. That's all I can promise. I, I, I can make an attempt. Um, first, I think it's important to recognize that this binary, this give and take is integral to every single system in the world. It goes back to the fact that before creation, there was just one. There was just the Or Ein Sof. There was just the Kaddish Baruch There was just the Abishur that filled all. In making the decision to create a world, God created an inherent paradigm of binary, of initiator and recipient. But one of the tremendous gifts of Hasidus is to teach us how every single paradigm is true in multiple ways. And while at first glance it would seem that Mashpia is the initiator and the Mechabel is the receiver, and that appears to be the more passive role. And that appears to be the lower role if you're going to look at it in a hierarchy. But the most oft expression used in teaching Hasidus is it depends on and in which context you're speaking. And it depends how you view it. Because in the same way that we can look at this, the lowest possible aspect of creation. And at the same time, Hasidus teaches that it's dafka, this which is the fruition of Hashem's desire and not as a footstool to heaven, but as the arena in which things can occur that transcend the celestial realm. And in similar fashion, Without a mash, without a mechabel, there is no mashpia. There is simply no mashpia without a mechabel. And in certain ways, it's the mechabel that is truly the initiator. Because it is only when there's a mechabel that anything can even begin to foment in the mind or in the heart or in the overtures of 
the mashpia. And so in this way, it's not seifan b'tchilasan, tchilasan b'seifan. It's really, it's a cycle. It's not really a straight line. It's not a linear flow from above downward, but rather a cycle that keeps replenishing itself and keeps feeding itself one on the other. So in a way, are you saying in a way the cycle can start with the Mechabal being a receiver and opening a receptacle for receiving? Absolutely. And that goes back to the question earlier about in that, in that paradigm, she is the mashpia. Now, there are many, many ways in which hashba can happen. So let's just translate hashba. It's the, it's the, because not everyone speaks Hebrew. Okay. So it's the influence that a, that, that is being given towards the feminine energy. Or towards any energy. Okay. It, it, It could be the influence that is being channeled towards the male energy by the female. Okay. So mashpia mechabal um, is not inherently male and female. It's it can go back and forth. Meaning, can it can the woman at some point be the mashpia, and the man can be the mechabal, or are we turning tables on its head? No. It. I think it's it's simpler than that. I think it's okay. when we understand essentially how mashpia mechabal works. Then we understand that it's one continuous flow. It's, it's a turning wheel. It's a cycle. It's not a linear flow. So it's not like, oh, in the normal paradigm, it's flowing from above to below, but sometimes it will be like acid reflux and it'll come from below upwards. <laughs> no, it's not like that. Okay. So can you explain? So like Hasidus gives us numerous examples. Okay. Like we have this idea that Shabbos nourishes the entire week. But then Hasidus teaches that the Talmudic uh, teaching about who, who prepares for Shabbos will eat on Shabbos spiritually means that what you do during the week nourishes your Shabbos. So the quality of your Shabbos will depend on what you're doing during the week. Both are true. Both are true. And that's in general what Hasidus does. It shows us that it's there are always at least two ways in which things are flowing at the very least. And while at first it may seem paradoxical, no, it's all part of one larger truth. So in Atmos, all of this coalesces. When it comes down in this world, it comes down fragmented. And, and, and we are the grateful and fortunate and privileged recipients of teaching that can show us how this all really works together. So we think of Ruchnius and Gashmius. But Hasidus tells us Gashmius is Ruchnius, Ruchnius is Gashmius. When Mashiach comes, the soul will be nurtured by the body. Now the body is nurtured by the soul. And we're so stuck in that paradigm, we can't even imagine what it means that the soul will be nourished by the body. But Hasidus teaches that the highest effluence is, is actually found in the body, in the physical. That's actually a higher manifestation of godliness than what could be reached through spirituality. Now, in, if you're using analogs, very often the soul is male and the body is female. And this brings us back to our, the beginning of our discussion about feminism. You know, everything that happens in this world is a pale reflection of a celestial truth. So in 1848, at that uh, famous 
Seneca Conference, which marks the beginning of um, the formal movement of feminism, if you look at the calendar, that happens very shortly after the time that the Zohar had forecasted that there would be a flood, not a flood of water like in Noah's time, but a flood of information, both holy information and more secular or mundane information. And then from that time onward, we move progressively towards the time of Mashiach, when all paradigms flip and the feminine voice is unleashed in a whole different way. And so to me, the feminist movement is the, it's inevitable. It's part of this natural historic progression towards the crescendo of Bria Sa'ilam. It's very interesting how, how you turn it into something that is so positive and powerful and meaningful, you know, to our, our trajectory as a Jewish nation. Um, I have a question. Women today aren't the same as women of our grandmother's generation. Um, we are louder. We are kind of conditioned to be a little bit, I don't want to say less feminine, but a little bit less soft in the way that we like come at the world and we interact with the world. Um, is that something that is a problem? Is that something that we're just not in tune with our feminine energy? Um, is that something that is directly influenced by, you know, modern feminism? <laughs> uh, I might be the wrong person for you to ask this because um, I never thought of the women in my family as especially soft. Um, not, I, I never, for me, femininity was never correlated or defined by a softness. Um, I saw strength in both the males and the females around me. Uh, for me, I think it's more about women taking more public roles than perhaps many women had in, in, in communal infrastructure uh, in earlier years. Although, as you've already noted, certainly there were always women in uh, communal roles and leadership roles. Um, but the Rebbe very, very early on um, taught us that what the world needs is both male and female energy working in tandem to finish up this job and bring Mashiach uh, in his famous Rashi Sichan, the words Vatitzi Dina Baslea. The Rebbe said that women need to go out. Um, they need to use the special tunais, the, the, the special qualities that God has vested us with to do this work. And the Rebbe spoke to a certain quality of the woman that is less combative and therefore um, more successful in impacting uh, people. So I think you're bringing up something important, and that is that as we raise our voices and as we step into the public um, eye more and more frequently, we should not lose our feminine trunais. To me, it's not about softness. Uh, it's, it's more about, again, you might go back to the mashpia makabel. You might even look at our bodies physiologically. So for women, it's more about kind of bringing disparate aspects together, absorbing them, bringing them in, creating a space where things can coalesce and join. And for men, it's much more of a, a modality of conquering, vanquishing, uh, a more obvious thrust outward. 
And um, if we remember who we are and why we're here and what we're meant to accomplish, and we don't buy the cheap and awful lie that a woman's greatness lies in the extent to which she can mimic a man, then we'll be fine. Um, but this is a chaotic time in history where women are finding their voices, but not everybody has the crystal clear vision of the Rebbet to guide them in, in how they can move forward strongly as a woman and be contributing their specific gifts as opposed to being a cheap knockoff of something else. I love that. So it's all about having the ability to find nuance and soft spaces and bringing things together in, in a very, um, I guess, more peaceful way, almost. Yeah, you could say peaceful or cohesive. Well, another thing that comes up a lot when we talk about feminism and women and, you know, the world that we live in, and I think this this isn't so much a discussion maybe in the Chabad world, but a much larger discussion in the larger Haredi world, um, and I hope you don't mind me bringing it up, is that there's a whole issue that women are having today that women don't have faces, right? So women are not represented in media, um, and women, like if a woman's giving a sheer um, at a program, let's say a Pesach program, the men's faces are on the magazines, but the women's are not. And they take, like a lot of people take issue with that. Um, what does Tyra tell us about this? Is this really an issue of Sneas? Um, Is this an issue of, you know, women somehow having fallen into a place where we're not val- valued enough? I guess that's how it's viewed, that maybe the women are not being valued enough. Um, first, I cannot speak for Tyra. I can just give you my own thoughts uh, for whatever they're worth, what my grandmother would call terrace luxion. Second, I think that this is a complex and multifaceted, but I would say this, if a particular magazine or medium or organ is created specifically for men, or even let us say primarily for men, I can see where uh, there might be a value in not having photographs of women. And I want to revisit that in a moment. I I don't understand this for a family magazine, for a magazine that is clearly reaching a target audience that is at least half female or perhaps 70 or 80% female. Uh, You could tell by the advertisements in that very magazine that they are clearly targeting the female demographic. Um, So I'm a little perplexed and confused about that. I would further say that this is a very difficult area because you could argue the more you take women out of the public thoroughfare, the more you hyper focus on that very topic. So men become hypersensitive to the sight of a woman because they're not used to seeing them at all. Um, And so the question becomes, where do we draw the line? There are communities where men and women walk on different sides of the street uh, and and so on and so forth. I don't feel like I have to go into detail, but there are many, many iterations of this. On the other hand, uh, we must remember that we we are halacha yidin, And halacha is guiding us in such a way as to retain the sensitivity in interaction between the genders, all for the purpose of ultimately strengthening our most essential relationship, our marriage, 
with our husband. And we live in a world where we, we need not even comment on uh, the chaos uh, the, that is precipitated by no boundaries at all. And so I feel like we're walking a tightrope. We're constantly walking a tightrope. Um, and in Chabad, this is especially acute for a number of reasons. One, because the Rebbe taught us that our way is not to sequester ourselves and build higher and higher and higher uh, walls and moats around our community. Um, the Rebbe taught us that every aspect of the world was created for the purpose of using it for Kedusha. So we don't live the same type of isolated lives as other Haredi communities, and yet we are most definitely Haredi in terms of our approach to halacha. Uh, to be a chassid is, first of all, to be a Yerushimayim and to be 100% attentive to and adherent of, uh, hopefully, uh, to every nuance of halacha. Um, we also further, uh, to add to the complexity, ours is a very porous community. We have people coming in all the time, and that brings with it uh, a whole different dimension, which is extremely enriching, and I think enriches all of us in our Avaitis Hashem, uh, but at the same time uh, does bring certain complexities to the table. Um, and then we have programs or events where we're catering mostly to a certain demographic, where, for instance, it's not appropriate uh, to have men and women separated because people are coming to this program with their spouses, et cetera, and we can't see them separately. But then we have um, our own laboratories coming to that same program, and then are they being seated separately? And is this creating a weakening in the way we comport ourselves as chassidim? And uh, it's, it's a very complex place that we find ourselves in, and we constantly have to be taking our temperature and... Um, making sure we're doing the right thing. Which is the point you made in the beginning also, which is just checking with yourself and where are you going and where are you coming from and how are you connecting? Because that's ultimately the point of what we're doing every single day. And with your mashpia, because Adam Karv La'atzmai, we're all very, very um, infatuated with ourselves. And <laughs> we, we certainly don't have the objectivity and the remove uh, to be able to assess what we're doing through an objective lens. So we have to check in with somebody else. We have to check in with the mashpia. Okay. Um, what do you think is the greatest challenge for women in today's world? Maybe it's what it's always been. And that is that a woman's life is the Ezra Tashem, extremely multifaceted. And there are at any given moment, many, many, many different things she must do. I think that men's roles are more clearly defined. They're never juggling as many balls as we are. Never, ever, ever. Um, it begins with the physiological fact of our bearing life, you know, conception, gestation, parturition, lactation. I mean, these are huge parts of our life and it's not like, oh, everything else is stopping. So to be a woman is to be multitasking, is to be juggling many balls, and uh, that has likely been the greatest challenge for women and the greatest privilege. I mean, I think about the women that left Mitzrayim, how easy could it have been to pack everybody up? You're going into the Midbar, you have no idea uh, what the provisions will be, what the, what the, what the 
you know, what the conditions will be, what the situation will be. You don't yet know that you're going to have clouds that are going to take care of, you know, your dry cleaning and pressing. You don't yet know that food is going to be raining down on your head. You have to pack up the babies. You have to pack up the old folk because history has shown and, and contemporary times is no different. It's, it's women who are in the final analysis, the caretakers, and they're the ones who are the glue between the various generations. Oh, and don't forget your tambourine because you know you're going to be singing and dancing. So, you know, think about that. It's, it's amazing how many tabs we have open at all times. And, and, and it really... And it doesn't, I, I feel like some of the tabs we have open don't actually ever close. I remember once after a very hard night, my kids, I had a three, two and one year old. And I called my grandmother and I said, when does this get easier? And she goes, my old, my youngest is what well, he was like 55 at the time. She's like, it doesn't get easier. And I always remind her of this. I'm like, you told me it doesn't get easier. I, so I just embraced the chaos, you know, the tabs just keep opening and, you know, Baruch Hashem, you know, we want the tabs to open. It's not, it's not really a complaint, but it does make us much more fragmented as individuals. And I think today, when we are capable of doing so much, as we discussed, maybe there are more tabs open. Maybe it's just the same thing, the same challenges as always, but maybe it's a little bit more. Well, I think there's an added complexity, and I hope I don't upset anybody with this. But I think the added complexity in our lives is our expectation that life is easy and comfortable. And that's something that many previous generations never contended with. Their life was never going to be easy or comfortable. They didn't even know if they were going to be alive the next day. And the disconnect between what we think life might be like and what it is, is often a cause of angst and upset and can sap us of necessary energy. And, and that's a shame. So I, I don't mean to be a party pooper here and say, expect life to be difficult. Uh, but what I'm saying is expect life to be challenging, messy, full, overflowing, unpredictable. Like you said earlier, embrace the chaos. And because so many things are easier for us, it's created an expectation. If our computer doesn't boot up in a nanosecond, we're already all bent out of shape. Maybe my computer is broken. Maybe I have some problem, et cetera, et cetera. You know, getting water from the well. I mean, needing five hours to put together a meal. Like it, it struck me when people started calling COVID unprecedented, like unprecedented, it what set against which reality set against which world history was our difficulty greater than what people went through world war one, world war two, the Spanish plague and Spanish flu and, and so many other plagues and so many other dangers in history with our DoorDash and our Netflix really. Your life is unprecedentedly more difficult. And yes, it was a time of confusion. And yes, even modern medicine didn't have all of the answers. But it was hardly a time of unprecedented difficulty. But it certainly felt that way. And I don't mean to trigger anyone by mitigating what it felt like. It's not anybody's fault. But it's somewhat counterintuitively that the ease to that, that we've become accustomed to has become 
a source of malcontent. Right, because we think we equate hard with being bad. When hard is just part of life and part of growth and hard in the spaces of hard is where we change and become better. Exactly. So you could say that no matter what our socioeconomic bracket, we all suffer to some degree from affluenza. LOL, I never heard that. And that, you know, that's that's a serious pathology. Affluenza. And it's malignant and it's contagious. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We'll stay away from all the people. Um, so no, 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 no. no we, I'm, I'm we joking. Strengthen ourselves, and that's another thing we women do wonderfully. We help each other. We help right. each other. We're inherently social beings, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our our self control is inherently interdependent, and so even the mom that's at the park with six kids will be looking at somebody else's carriage that just fell over because it was unbalanced. And there are two kids in that carriage with six bags on top and she will run and pick those kids up. And and we need to do that for each other. So never stay away from the people. Never stay away from the people, but maybe curate the people. Or maybe curate what we're going to allow into our inner landscape. We don't have to ingest every idea that's being floated out there. We can be discriminating about what we make part of our mindset. But I think the only way to do that is if you have a solid base uh, with like the values that we have, which I think is absolutely somehow it's not always as accessible. And, And this is a totally different topic. And at this point, we can't go into it. But I think sometimes we consume things that aren't inherently Jewish, but sound from like maybe they're not Jewish at all, but they sound from, um, and we assume that's the Tyra way. So we ingest that, so to speak, right. Without actually being able to say, well, what does Tyra say? And that's why I think today's podcast is so important because we get to revisit what femininity means from a Jewish perspective. And I think when our listeners are going to listen to this, it's going to turn things on their head because maybe it doesn't sound exactly what they expected it to be. And I think that that's very, very important for us to find the, the way that Tyra views women and Tyra views um, feminism and what feminism means um, through a Tyra perspective. Um, Real estate, there are only three things, location, location, location. As far as I'm concerned, there are only three things. Education, education, education. I know that your leaders are an eclectic community, um, but a lot of, I'm sorry, your listeners, um, but I'm sure that a lot of listeners belong to the Chabad community. So remember, Chabad stands for Chachma, Bina, and Das. We must nourish and nurture ourselves, everybody. We can only nourish and nurture ourselves properly by learning. Even if it's five minutes a day, literally five minutes a day, start learning the Hayyim Yayim. And this is not just for your Chabad listeners, for all of your listeners, no matter who you are, start learning something every day, five minutes a day, and do yourself a favor. At least some of it should be Chabad Hasidus, because that will speak to you like nothing else. Thank you, Rifki. I think that this is such an informative, powerful, and empowering um, interview. Um, So I really appreciate your time today. And I really appreciate the effort you gave to really be very clear and transparent with all the questions that we asked. So thank you very, very much, Rufki. And um, may Hashem give you the kayak to keep speaking to women and to keep giving them all the answers or some of the answers or a perspective um, into 
the entire review of these very important topics. Thank you, Rifki, for the opportunity. Um, and right back at you, Hashem Benchu, with first of all, Yiddish Hasidish Anachas. Amen. Tremendous, tremendous Hatzlacha and all of your many great works. And I think the most important thing you said, you used the word transparency. When my kids were younger and I was getting ready to go on a speaking engagement, they would invariably see me put my outfits I was going to take on the bed. And um, they would come and they would say, where are you going? And I said, how do you know I'm going? And they would say, your costumes are on your bed. Your costume. Um, <laughs> and, and then I would say, yes, I am going. And then more than once, a kid would look at me with a quizzical eye and say, why does anybody want to listen to you? Um, and that's a very good question. And I came to the understanding that I don't know if people are listening. I am talking to myself. And if people want to listen in, then um, that's okay with me. But I think it was the Katzke that said, that when you, when you speak it, you can hear it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, to talk to myself uh, about a topic I uh, think about a lot, I feel strongly about, and I hope to continue learning about. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and grew. Original music of Shamil's Nigan provided by Hazen David Katak. We look forward to your input, feedback, and suggestions. We also have partnership opportunities available. Please email info at bodiessouls.com. Again, info at bodiessouls.com with two S's. Thank you.